I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. But with independence comes a lot of work and very little security. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. If you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at The Same Drugs, please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. Patrons get early access to episodes, exclusive access to select content, and access to private live streams. You can also subscribe to The Same Drugs on Substack, that's meganmurphy.substack.com, or you can support this podcast directly on anchor.fm by clicking the support button on The Same Drugs podcast page. You can also learn more about my work and donate to support it at meganmurphy.ca. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Stephanie Wynn, an associate producer of a new documentary called Affirmation Generation, The Lies of Transgender Medicine. Stephanie, hello. Thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs. I'm, I'm so glad to meet you virtually. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Megan. Um, I wonder if, before we get into things, you can tell me a little bit about yourself Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, So I'm a therapist in Oregon, originally from California, and I had an unconventional life before doing therapy, but my trajectory in the world of mental health has been pretty normal in the sense that I went to grad school, I worked in community mental health, and I worked in a group practice and went into private practice, and I was always pretty far left in my politics. And I would say that there was a good several years where politics didn't really influence therapy all that much. Um, but when <laughs> when gender ideology started to come in, I, I took the, you know, the progressive approach that was the dominant narrative in the field at the time. And then I started to go through a big shift when I started learning about detransitioners in the summer of 2020 just as I was um, going through a big ideological shift in a lot of other ways as well, gaining exposure to ideas that I really hadn't been exposed to before in the places that I lived and the people I'd been associating with. And um, my sort of claim to fame, you know, what, what I've been known for since I entered the public sphere a year or two ago what is my stance on gender-affirming care. Um, and my willingness to speak out on that issue has gotten me canceled. It's gotten my license attacked. I've lived to tell the tale. So basically I've survived one of most therapists' greatest fears. And I'm, I'm here to basically embolden others to do the same. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that because I know that a lot of people in your field, as well as a lot of people in all sorts of fields and in the general public are scared to speak out about this. And it's really important, I think, for people to see that people like you have spoken up and that it's been okay, which is not to say that it's easy. It's not easy. It's not easy for anyone to speak up. 
But I think that, you know, I people, first of all, I don't think need to make so many excuses about why they can't speak out, especially when people like you and so many other women in particular are taking huge risks to do so. But I, I do also, I want the message to be out there that it's okay. Like it, you might be hard. You'll probably be attacked. You, you risk, you risk quite a bit by speaking up, but you can do it and, and you'll survive and it'll be okay. And it'll embolden others to do it as well, which, which in turn will, will make things easier for everyone. You know, there's power in numbers, right? Exactly. This is the hill to die on. There, there's no greater hill to die on. And I heard someone say the other day that people call me brave, but if everyone would be brave, this would be over a lot sooner. Yeah. Um, and more and more people are speaking up, which is great. It feels like what's going on right now is so different than what was going on even a couple years ago. Certainly back when I started speaking out about this, like back when I was banned from Twitter for, you know, so-called misgendering, um, it feels like people are really catching on and getting really mad and really wanting to do something. And of course, these these detransitioners, as they're called, are speaking out too, which is it's incredibly brave but it's also like it's so heartbreaking because these kids have been for lack of a better word screwed over so it's just it's so unfair yeah and you know the the leftist ideology comes to a point where it eats its own tail because if you're really so concerned with the most marginalized oppressed disadvantaged people in society well go far enough and you realize it is actually the detransitioners who are being silenced by the leftists who think they're the ones standing up for the most vulnerable members of society. It's all very ironic and it, it can't end soon enough. Yeah, they really, they they talk a lot about supporting trans kids until the so-called trans kids uh, challenge their, their narratives and then suddenly they're disappeared or vilified. Um, I'm curious to know what made you start speaking out. Was there an incident? Um, you know, I am a very impulsive person, but this one I, I watched and waited for a while because I, I had been affirming people's gender identities, right? I've been doing all that. And then as I started to have my doubts, I just decided to sort of slow down on taking new referrals who had anything to do with the issue while I figured out what I really thought about it. And, you know, learning about detransitioners is definitely a big turning point for me. That sparked something. And um, I sat back and watched and learned a lot and thought a lot on my own for about a year before I said anything. And then I started blogging and I joined Twitter and I began the process of preparing my podcast. You must be some kind of therapist. And of course, from there, you know, everything has um, spiraled. I've gotten involved in Affirmation Generation, which has been wonderful. Um, learning about T-Transitioner was, was the turning point, but I think there was just like an inner momentum that had to build of finding my thoughts, finding my voice, practicing writing, practicing putting my thoughts together, and kind of owning my authority and realizing I, I have a professional duty to use the authority I have from my years of practice and my ability to articulate psychological concepts to describe why this is wrong. 
And at the time, I, I was very alone. I mean, I didn't have any of the connections I had now. I started podcasting before I knew that gender a wider lens existed. <laughs> um, you know, before I knew that there were any other therapists saying anything about this, I was just like, I have to start talking to people. Um, and I, I think it was, yeah, it was probably my my interest in detransitioners combined with realizing that I had a professional responsibility and then taking time to find my words for that. So how long have you been a therapist? And like, what year was it that you were in in school learning mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, become a therapist? I went to grad school 2010 to 13, graduated in 2013. That last year, 2012, 2013, I started getting clinical experience. Um, it's called practicum when you're still in school. And that was just like working with kids in an elementary school, pretty easy. And um, then I got, you know, thrown out to the wolves because you're in this very nurturing environment of grad school, talking about these very lofty psychological concepts. And then suddenly, you have to find an income source. And so I, my first job was, um, you know, it was, it was a dramatic change from being in grad school. I was working in community mental health in a residential facility in Oakland, California with um, 18 to 24 year olds with severe mental illness who were stepped down from hospitalization. Um, so residential work was pretty grueling. I did that for about a year and a half and every day I just got out of there like, I made it through alive, you know, and um, then I moved up to Oregon. I was living in uh, the Bay Area at the time. Um, I started working with uh, a community organization that served the Native American community. So a lot of foster youth and families involved in the foster care system, a lot of intergenerational trauma and poverty. Um, but we were also a community mental health clinic and we would see anyone. So, you know, anyone who was on our our Medicaid program, um, you know, low-income couples, adolescents, and I always had a heart for working with adolescents and couples, and it's a shame to not be able to work with adolescents right now because of the, the backwards laws prohibiting, I mean, the laws, they don't claim to prohibit exploratory therapy, but it's just too risky. I want to talk to you a bit about therapy in general and kind of changes in terms of therapy and changes in terms of how people view therapy. Um, and I, I definitely want to get into the gender identity stuff and talk more about affirmation generation a bit later. But we hear, I think, a lot more about trauma than we did, you know, maybe 20 years ago or something like that, maybe even 10 years ago, um, you know, better than I do. Um, and I think that's really great because I think that, you know, childhood trauma has like an enormous impact on your life, on your adult life, on your relationships, um, obviously on your triggers and, and sort of how you operate in the world. But I'm curious to know what you think about how trauma is discussed in this sort of modern era um, and whether you think it's overused or or what. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I want to kind of broaden that to just mental health lingo in general. And I'll definitely talk about trauma, but something I noticed over the last um, maybe five years or so, um, I forgot to say, after working in the Native American population, once I got licensed, I worked for a group practice and then private practice. So I've uh, been in a variety of settings. But something I noticed, especially in that, in that group practice, you know, maybe six years ago, 
um, was that adolescents seemed to have a really great psychological vocabulary. I was hearing them talk about anxiety and depression, and I thought, wow, these kids have so much insight. I don't think I had words for this at that age, right? And and then I started to realize that the, the depth of their vocabulary only went so far, right? That they, they had these terms, but they weren't really able to put better words to it than than the lingo. And that's, you know, eventually led me into learning about how mental health and mental illness has been fetishized um, through youth culture. Um, everyone wants a diagnosis. Um, but, you know, I remember at the time being impressed with people's self-awareness. But you know, something I've noticed since then is that there's a lot of interest in diagnosis and labels like anxiety and depression and trauma. Um, but there's there's not a very mature dialogue in the culture at large about how that knowledge is useful. Like, what do we do from there, right? So in the therapy setting, the value of a diagnosis is that it points toward treatment options. And it, it guides the direction of the therapy because we know what we're working on, what symptoms we're hoping to relieve the person of. Um, but in the culture at large, it's like the value is the diagnosis and then it ends there. It's not like, so what does knowing this actually tell us to do next? Or, or if it does guide things in a particular direction, it's like how the world needs to accommodate me, right? It's like I have this disability and therefore you need to treat me in a certain way so that I don't get hurt or so that you don't worsen my symptoms, which is, you know, maintaining this external locus of control, which is not good for long-term mental health outcomes. Rather than, I have this insight about myself and my proclivities, and so here's what that does for me in terms of knowing, you know, how I need to take care of myself, or what my automatic negative assumptions about things tend to be so that I can correct for that filter. So I think, you know, all of that, more generally is going on then. And when it comes to the concept of trauma, I, I think it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, I agree with you that I think there's a lot of value in having more a more trauma-informed population in general. Um, but there's also, it's like when everything is racism, nothing is racism. Same thing. Like when everything is trauma, nothing is trauma. Like I, <laughs> I'm trying to remember what I heard someone say they were traumatized by recently. I was just like in a store and I heard some young employees chatting amongst themselves and I heard one of them say, oh, I was so traumatized. And it was just like, I don't know, like getting a bad grade or something, you know? Yeah. And and so then it kind of makes light of, of what trauma really entails. Yeah, and it sort of treats hardship as something that you shouldn't have to face or that's going to like mess you up for life. Like it's an inherently negative thing. And it's not, I mean, it, it does suck to go through hard times. It really does, but bad things happen to all of us. And I think that it is, you know, those, those kinds of experiences are what provides wisdom and helps us navigate life and I think makes us into stronger, more confident, um, more well-rounded people. And, and especially, I think, I mean, I, I am a fan of therapy. I know that there's lots of people who are highly critical of therapy, which doesn't mean that I don't have criticisms of therapy, but having 
done a lot of therapy in my life. I, I have found it really useful in terms of, you know, navigating relationships, communication, and, you know, learning about myself and again, my own triggers. Um, in terms of that, that trauma piece, I wonder what you think about um, Gabor Mate. This is somebody who I've, I have been a fan of over the years. Um, and in recent, you know, more recently, I've sort of started to wonder if there is an over application of that kind of trauma thing in his work. So I was curious to know what you thought about that or if you followed his work very closely. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat as you, uh, except I haven't been following really closely enough to to give clear thoughts on it. Mm. I mean, I got to see, to hear him speak in grad school. I didn't know who he was, and I had a really great family therapy teacher who said one day, for class, we're going to this lecture. Come with me. And we got to see him speak right after he had released, um, I think it was When the Body Says No. And... Uh, they were out of that book for sale that day, but I got scattered and I read that. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've watched a number of his talks and I think he's absolutely brilliant. You know, I, I think what he does well is connect the dots between all the different fields, you know, our psychology, our biology, our immune systems and society at large. Um, but I've, I've gotten hints or inklings here and there that there is a little bit of the sort of overindulgent coddling mentality in how some of his work is coming across. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't want to pick on him specifically necessarily, um, but he, he does obviously have a big profile. And I think he has shaped a lot of how we talk about trauma nowadays. And yeah, I guess I guess coddling is a good word for, for what's going on right now in terms of that trend of sort of treating every little thing as a trauma and I think that it sort of in a way has led to a a culture or a population of of narcissists and narcissism um another word that's probably over applied um but have you have you noticed that have you noticed a shift in 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 narcissistic behaviors or narcissistic personalities yeah, and I would say cluster B more generally, you know, narcissistic traits, borderline traits, and histrionic, um, as well as antisocial, but, you know, not so concerned with that for the sake of this discussion. Because when we think about Gen Z, um, I I really feel for them. I, I think there's so many histrionic influencers, um, you know, and, and for those who aren't familiar with the term, it's it's a sort of grandiose displays of superficial emotion acting like you're closer with people than they are, but it only goes so deep. Um, flamboyant manners of dress, attention-seeking behavior. You know, I, there's so much um, histrionic behavior in social media influencers. And then you have the, you know, the borderline unstable sense of self that that situation's not made any better when people are spending so much of their time engaged with the screen and, and with social media. Um, and, and you know, who can blame anyone in this generation for developing this sort of personality when it's like the culture is shaping it in that way? It's like, which would you rather choose? Would you rather choose the path of instant gratification 
where you can get likes and accolades and sympathy and where all your character flaws are explained by something that's not your fault and people are going to come to your defense and people are going to celebrate you just for existing. Would you rather choose that path or would you rather choose the path where you have none of that protection, none of that praise, you're likely to get attacked for your immutable characteristics and any sense of um, confidence that you want to build up, you have to do through hard work. It's like, <laughs> well, and it's super profitable. I mean, this whole trend of TikTok influencers, and I recently accidentally almost encountered this this world of, of Twitch streamers, and these people are making tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars off of really not doing very much. And what I witness is a lot of, narcissism, definitely superficiality. And I, I, I do, I feel bad for these people too, because as you say, you know, they've grown up in this world where they're on social media all the time. And it's almost like they've spent more time looking at themselves as opposed to being with themselves. So not only are they thinking of how others are seeing them at all times, but I think they it's almost like a self-objectification. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I just saw a clip, I mean, I saw on social media a clip of Kate Winslet speaking about her reasons for not letting her kids have devices and social media. And she put it really beautiful. She she talked about I you're a kid, I want you to look at the clouds, not take a picture of the clouds, post it on social media, and then doubt whether that was a, a lame thing to be interested in because it didn't get enough likes. And it's like, how can you <laughs> ever develop enough of a sense of interiority to have a sense of self, to have the capacity to, to have an inner voice that you can bounce things off of, that, that can soothe you, that can regulate you, that can offer you wisdom? How can you have anything within yourself that you've cultivated that you know how to consult when you need guidance? If you're, if you're going through entire developmental stages, just looking outward. Yeah. And I mean, another thing that seems to be a part of that culture, which I, you know, this really reveals my generation, which I suppose is like the very, very, very tail end of, of Gen X, um, which is that so many of these kids, these like Gen Z kids, and I think a lot of millennials also um, have been really overprescribed for things like, you know, that which you mentioned earlier, anxiety and depression. And there's a huge problem. And now I'm starting to see it when I watch these streamers, because it's very obvious that they're on something. Um, and it's Adderall. <laughs> I think there's like an, a major Adderall problem and a major Xanax problem. Yeah, I don't know the specifics there, but I, I will put in my plug for birth control being overprescribed. Um, because we know as women, um, you and I were chatting a little bit about hormones before we started recording, right? Uh, we know how much hormones can influence. And uh, what I have seen so much as a therapist is... Girls being put on birth control at 13, 14 years old because they have painful periods or even just acne, right? Not because they're sexually active, 
which would be another conversation. I don't Does think if acne is a medical problem, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah. you're a teenager. Yeah, sorry, kid. You'll like, grow out of it. Your face is oily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, it's like the moment that that a, that a girl has a painful period or acne, it's like, oh, well, we could just put you on birth control, right? And And then these girls, their hormones are being regulated synthetically they don't know what it's like to go through their own natural cycles Mm. um they never have a chance to adjust to that and then the anxiety and depression kick in right and oftentimes there's genetic predisposition or there's things going on in her life but it could also just be puberty and what's the role of the hormones i some people are more sensitive than others personally i can't put those kind of hormones in my body if i put artificial hormones in my body i get crazy mood swings so these girls they're they're becoming more neurotic they're getting mood swings it could be a reaction to the birth control but they never had a chance to even go through the first few years of puberty and get accustomed to what their cycle is like so they're just regulating their cycle with these synthetic chemicals and then they go to their doctor and now they're taking a second pill for anxiety and depression so at 14 or 15 a girl's on hormonal birth control and she's on an SSRI or an SNRI, right? And then sometimes it goes like this. Now there's many different ways it could go, but you know, where the Adderall comes in, I've seen this too, where girls are highly anxious, highly neurotic. They, um, they start taking an SSRI or an SNRI. It calms their anxiety down, but then they, they discover that their motivation had been coming from their anxiety that they had been high achieving because of their anxiety. And now they can't muster the willpower to concentrate in school. Now that's when they're on Adderall. (laughs) It's when it goes from birth control to antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds to ADHD meds. And I'm not saying that's always how it goes. That's just one possible route. But then, you know, I, I often work with women in their 20s who have been on the same combination of drugs, you know, the, the hormones and, and the psych meds for their entire young adulthood. And, and then there's this question of like, do I even know myself? Mm-hmm. Do I know why I'm taking these meds? And some of them have never been told by a healthcare provider that anxiety and depression are not like a lifelong diagnosis. <laughs> there's, they're time limited. To, to get a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder, you only have to have symptoms for six months. For major depressive disorder, two weeks. You could go through two weeks of feeling the blues and be diagnosed with depression, okay? But there are people who have been seeing their psych providers for years just with this narrative, this oversimplistic narrative, I have anxiety and depression. Yeah. Like, I have diabetes. Like, I have this genetic, con- you know, and it's like, okay, just because it's genetic, yeah, okay, your dad and your sister or whoever, like has anxiety and depression too but there's an important conversation to be had about like is this how you want to think of yourself for the rest of your life do you want to be hooked on drugs for the rest of your life yeah or do you want to try to learn how to regulate it when you feel stressed out or when you feel depressed or when you feel worried i mean everybody feels anxious sometimes Mm -hmm. and everybody goes through periods of depression you know that's just what life is and this idea that if you feel these things then yeah there's something wrong with you and the solution is take to take a pill not to sort of like ride the wave 
or figure out things that you can. I mean, this is all part of like becoming an adult, like growing older is figuring out like a, that when you feel these things, you feel stressed out, you feel anxious, you feel depressed. It's not going to last forever. Cause I think when you're young, you sort of do feel like it's going to last forever. Like I remember when I went through my first breakup and it was just, I mean, breakups are always horrible, but when you go through your first breakup, it's like, devastating and you think you're gonna feel sad forever and that you're never gonna get over it and that feels really overwhelming and scary and then you do get over it and the next time it happens you're like okay this feels really bad but I remember what happened last time and I recovered and it'll be okay it'll just take some time and these are maybe some things that I can do to sort of make myself feel a bit better or try to like cope with this in a in a healthier way Yeah, it's like we're not allowing people the conditions to develop the resilience that is then going to serve them in a variety of circumstances. You know, I was was just talking with some folks earlier today. And by the way, if if anyone listening to this happens to be a current or former client of mine and you recognize yourself in what I'm saying, it is not about you. These stories are just that common. Like I have worked with so many people who (laughs) have all been through the same things. And, And so that's why we're having a conversation about the culture at large. Um, but like girls, um, adolescent girls are risk averse and neurotic by nature. And, um, I'm a big fan of the work of Leonard Sachs and and he writes about this in Girls on the Edge, um, that, uh, girls need support learning how to take healthy risks. They, they need to, um, have experiences that strengthen their confidence and their competence and their ability to trust their body to navigate scary situations. You know, whether that's horseback riding or rock climbing or zip lining, um, girls need to get out there and try things. And, and this is just my speculation. I don't have any data that I can point to, to, to prove that there's a correlation here, but I think that part of why so many girls, are taking shelter in the idea of a masculine identity is that they feel weak and afraid and the idea of being a boy feels like an easy way to just instantly have a thicker skin but it's not a thicker skin it's a shield it's an artificial thing that you're shielding your true self behind and i think they're looking for that sense of well, what are the healthy qualities of the masculine? Protection, safety, security, strength, confidence, courage, boldness. They're looking for that. And they don't actually have any experiences grounding it into their body through developing real competence. So then they just claim to be male as if that's going to fix it. And it doesn't. Right, right. Yet another superficial solution for something that, you know, it, it... a lot of these problems are that people want instant solutions and these things are things that take time to learn and, and to develop as you, as you have new experiences and again, hard experiences. And as you get older, um, I'm curious when you started to see this, this gender identity thing popping up, did you learn about this when you were in school, for example? So in school, um, I, honestly can't remember what our discussions were of the um, gender identity disorder of the DSM-4 in our psychopathology class. What I can tell you is that I had a psychopathology class where I studied the DSM-4 because it was right before the DSM-5 came out. 
the DSM-5 came out in 2013 and I graduated in 2013. So we were studying the one right before it, knowing like there, this is gonna be changed real soon. We're gonna teach you what we know about the upcoming changes, but you're gonna have to study the DSM-4 for now. And so at the time it was gender identity disorder, not gender dysphoria. And I barely remember our discussion about that. I don't remember anybody talking about anything trans until there was this one woke girl in the class, but she was, she was an outlier and when I think about what I what I hear going on in the grad schools these days is like everyone is more like her but at the time she was more on the fringe and I remember in one of our classes her trying to get us all to call ourselves cis <laughs> like she was the one who introduced the term cisgender and I remember at the time it feeling a little awkward um I mean this this same student uh also like threw a fit on facebook one day because the reaction emojis had blue eyes and that was racist like <laughs> so course. you know like you take things with a grain of salt sometimes but um but i have been sharing this story lately and of course i have to you know i can't share anything too personal about anyone i've worked with clinically but what i can tell you is that we had a conflict of interest in my first job because like I mentioned, it was a residential facility with 18 to 24 year olds with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, you know, coming out of hospitals, history of suicide attempt, like really high needs population. And, um, and people had to share rooms. And it was always, you know, we had the girls rooms and the boys rooms, but we had a delusionally psychotic, very large and physically intimidating male who claimed to be female, nothing feminine, like he wasn't trying to pass at all, just, but he claimed to be female. And our director insisted that he be placed in a room with a female who had a sexual trauma history. And mm -hmm. she ran away and I don't blame her. I probably would have run away if I were her too. I would not want to sleep in the same room as that male. So that was the first time I got exposed to conflict of interest, but it really didn't come up again for a while um, until it started kind of you know, creeping in here and there um, with these adolescent girls claiming to be boys. And um, as that was going on in 2017, I went to a training in the new sort of standard of care, um, this gender affirming model, which really isn't a model of psychotherapy. It doesn't give you any protocol for assessing, diagnosing, treating. It doesn't give you any skills, right? It's just you have to affirm or else you're responsible for the death of this poor minority of people who are all just gonna kill themselves because of you, you bigot, right? Like that was, you know, not so many words, but that was the mentality behind the training that I went to. And and I remember adopting it um, because I wanted to be a good person. Like, isn't that why everyone adopts it, right? Because you wanna be a good person because you assume that you don't know what it's like to be this poor magical trans child who knows who they are, who desperately needs puberty blockers so they're not forced to go through the trauma of the wrong sex puberty, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, there was a social pressure to go on to the next level of training and I felt guilty for the fact that I didn't really wanna go because I felt like I should go, but I never did. But if I'd gone to that next level of training, I would have been taught how to write the letters to recommend that people get surgeries and I am glad that I never did that. Um, Have you in your practice uh, dealt with kids who tell you that they're transgender or tell you that they have gender dysphoria? 
Yeah, I saw them for years before I decided that I needed to take a step back and figure out what this was all really about. I mean, you know, I I was I really had my heart in this. I was trying to make it work. I was trying to be the type of therapist that the TRAs all think that I I should be, that every therapist should be. And it wasn't right-wing propaganda as they would like to believe that changed my <laughs> mind. It was actually working with the trans-identified young people doing my best to believe their narratives and not seeing things get better. Um, not feeling like we could ever talk about the elephant in the room. There was just so much that was walled off and defended against behind this trans identity. And again, if anyone feels like I'm talking about them, I'm not. I had many patients like this. And what kinds of, you know, were there commonalities um, among the girls and then among the boys? Um, were there commonalities among all of them or or was it like pretty different in terms of the the things that they were describing, like boys versus so girls? Boys actually. Okay. I, can't, I can't remember much about them. I, I remember working with some older adult males, um, but for, you know, for the females, uh, the young ones, yeah, I mean, and none of it would surprise you. <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> sexual trauma history, gay, um, family conflict. It's, General puberty stuff, probably, like mm -hmm. your body changing. Peer pressure, um, parental alienation, you know, sometimes like uh, sometimes where dad is absent and mm -hmm. mom's really struggling to be both parents or where there's, um, you know, like a distant male who's where, where masculinity is linked with um, abandonment or abuse sometimes a girl feels like she needs to step into that role or reclaim that role um, yeah and you know autistic traits OCD body dysmorphia like none of it would surprise you mm -hmm. I watched I watched the film that you associate produced affirmation generation um, it's very good super important i hope that people will go watch it um it, i know that it's on vimeo did i even i feel like i've never said that word out loud before i've always just spelled it um and i i saw that it was back up on youtube although i don't know i is it back up on the your channel on youtube so uh the place that we would love everyone to go is just visit our website and click on our vimeo link there so that that's kind of the mm. easiest thing to remember is affirmationgenerationmovie.com and go to vimeo okay um but um so basically what the drama that unfolded is you know our film was up for three or four days it got nineteen thousand views and then it got taken down because of a bunch of trans rights activists complaining and then a bunch of people from our side complained and uh, Vimeo eventually reinstated the film after manually reviewing and finding that it did not violate their policies. So that was a big okay. win. But uh -huh. in the meanwhile, um, people had downloaded the film because our producer had chosen to make it downloadable when it was on Vimeo at first. And, and this is all early access, by the way. Like this is all for the first few tens of thousands of views. We definitely you know, eventually want to work with a distributor, but our early access was for parents, teachers, therapists, doctors, politicians, people really, really want to pay attention to the message of this movie. Um, 
So, uh, you know, our producer wanted people to have it and people downloaded it. And then that was really advantageous because when it got removed, it was always going to pop up somewhere else, you know. Um, with Dropbox, it's not that we got kicked off of Dropbox. It's that, I guess, the amount of traffic um, to her backup Dropbox link exceeded her Dropbox plan. Um, so then it wasn't available on Dropbox anymore. But my friend Matt Osborne, who's been on an episode of my podcast, had uploaded it to his Substack. Um, one of our uh, detransitioners in our film, David, put it on his Rumble and Odyssey and maybe his YouTube. Um, you know, we, we have strategic reasons why we're not putting it on YouTube because of how that might affect relationships with distributors. Uh, a lot of people have asked about that. And it's not really mine okay. to comment on, but yeah, the place people can go for now is Vimeo and the easiest way to find that is through our website. Okay, great. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I did see in the film there was a statistic mentioned um uh, it may have been connected to the tavistock clinic but something like 46 percent of the girls who were showing up with so-called gender dysphoria were autistic is that yeah. right yeah i i recall it being 48 percent and Sorry. i'm not sure if it was girls or kids in general no it's fine it's it's, it's a huge amount right yeah and why is that? Can you explain that? So, I mean, my own way of putting two and two together is that gender ideology is really appealing to people who are looking for an easy way to fit in and explain away all the hurt caused by not fitting in in the past, right? So kids who are autistic, obviously they have a difficult time socially. And, you know, as I say in the film, people with people on the autism spectrum have emotions and can have quite a bit of anxiety and they can really care about people, too. But the way that they process social and emotional information in their brain isn't able to keep up with the pace at which uh, social and emotional interactions are happening. Right. So, you know, people with with autism have to find kind of different ways of of learning to do things, different ways of you know, sometimes very consciously or deliberately training themselves in reading body language or in understanding, you know, figurative language, things like that. And until someone with autism has had the right opportunities and support or taken it upon themselves to learn some kind of workarounds for um, dealing with how their brain is differently structured and processing that information, you know, until they get to that point, social interactions are just very overwhelming. And so they've they've likely been bullied. They've they've felt different. They've felt ostracized. And um, and they also don't relate with gender norms. Like I, I have the sensitivity level of the average person on a spectrum. I have a highly sensitive nervous system. And I would like I, I can't imagine a situation in which you can convince me to wear high heels or to do like half the things that um that the average like stereotypically feminine woman in our society does mm -hmm. and so you take someone on the autism spectrum who has that level of sensory sensi sensitivity so that things are unpleasant but they also just don't operate socially the same way so the the idea of like presenting in the stereotypically feminine way and and playing all the catty social games that are hard to keep up with and or you know being into things that are that are stupid or make no sense from an autistic perspective um you know, all of that is kind of like fuel for the gender ideology to come in because this person has this whole lifespan 
of not relating to sex typical interests, especially stereotypically feminine interests for girls. Um, and that's not to say that that's the case for all autistic people who get involved with the gender stuff, but but that can be a factor for some is that they already don't relate to gender stereotypes and they've been bullied, they felt ostracized, they felt different, they don't have an easy way to fit in. And then this ideology comes in and says, well, if you don't feel like a girl, if you've never wanted to dress this way or act this way, it's because you're really a boy. And also, it's not your fault that you've been made fun of your whole life. It's not your fault that you feel weird or awkward or different. It's, um, it's society's fault for being transphobic. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is just declare that you're one of us, simple as pie, right? And then automatically, you're welcomed, you're affirmed. And, and that is so tempting. Like, who, who wouldn't go for it? That's just one way that an autistic person could be vulnerable to it. Um, I also mentioned in the documentary the sort of black and white narratives that explain everything. And, you know, I don't go into this too much, but like how someone with an autistic mind, once they once they get an idea, they really, really like to go for it. And so they will go down the gender rabbit hole. Right. And I mean, autism aside, like, it's just... I, I, I am so frustrated by the adults in the room not behaving as adults in the room i mean when i was a kid for a really long time i felt like i didn't fit like when i was a kid i really liked the idea of a tomboy and like all the the girl characters and like the books that i was reading or the movies that i was watching they were all tomboys um and and that was like a positive thing for me. That didn't make me feel weird. Like I felt proud to be a tomboy. Like I hated dresses and I didn't want to wear pink and I wanted to like have adventures. And, um, and then as I got older and went through puberty and became a teenager, I think I felt like I was never really properly fitting into the feminine role. Like it never felt natural to me. And I, that people will probably think that's weird when I say it, because I know that I like look quite feminine and that I have long hair and long nails and I wear makeup and so on and so forth. But personality wise, I, I don't, I'm not very feminine <laughs> and I, I spend most of my time with men. I tend to have more male friends and female friends. Um, Same here and, all of that. Yeah. And like, it's just, if I had been born in a different generation, I think almost for sure I would have thought, oh, well, I'm a boy, or I would have thought that it would be cooler to be a boy or that I would feel more comfortable as a boy. Because I don't, I yeah. do, yeah, I feel more comfortable being around men. And I've thought about this a lot. I know this isn't my own therapy session, but because <laughs> I've tried to sort of figure it out because it's not, you know, like I have close female friends too, and there's lots of women that I like, but I'm also so like rude and brash and straightforward <laughs> and I don't really play games and I, I don't like all the nicey nicey. Yeah. I find it very exhausting to, to be or, like, or no, like you're fawning. so great. Yeah. yeah. Ah, like all that shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. Oh my God, you look amazing. Or like you go girl. Like the yeah. I feel like there's a lot of like comforting that women are expected to do around each other and a lot of lying to each other that oh, women yeah. are supposed to do, which I really hate doing I know, it's and don't the energy for. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and like, yeah, I mean it's yeah. It, 
I hate no, I it because it. it sounds sexist, but no, reality. I'm I'm the same way, Megan, and uh, and I'll just like your name, like I it would pop up here and there for a while, and I have this thing where like I I have like this list of people in my head that I want to get to know that I just haven't de- delved into their work yet. And your name was like on that list and it kept like moving up where I'm like, someday I'm going to familiarize <laughs> myself with Megan Murphy and your name kept coming up, right? And then like a few weeks before you invited me to chat, I, I was like, I'm going to familiarize myself with Megan Murphy now. And then I, got, I started listening to your show and I'm like, I really like this chick. I feel like we're like similar temperament and I'm the same way where like, I understand that I come across as feminine in some ways, but like I'm, I'm, I don't play those games. They drive mm-hmm. me nuts, and like I, I can't stand being around women like that, honestly, because I, can't, I can't play the part. I can't be like, oh my god, you look, so-, you know, oh god. So, and um, it feels phony. Like I just want to be myself. I just, I cannot yeah. bring myself to care about putting energy into this whole like phoniness. No, like, it's. Just- it's- I don't yeah. enjoy it. It's not mean. <laughs> I, I think it's my opinion that women like you and me are, the, you know, some of the greatest threats to gender ideology in part because it is it's the adult women who were never all that girly themselves, who have well integrated masculine and feminine sides, who know that we would have been those girls yeah, and who are 100 percent sure <laughs> that it's a damn good thing that we didn't grow up with this ideology and with these medical interventions. Like, we're the ones who understand and and are, you know, it's like the, the ideologues like to say this really like hyperbolic stuff about their existence being threatened. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, on a psychological level, we are the greatest threat to the existence of this ideology because we are living proof of how absurd it is, you know? And and we're not, like, we are not people who cling to rigid gender roles. We're not people who, who like, think that women shouldn't get to have masculine sides or any of that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to fit in. When I was, you know, 16, I was. 16, you don't know yourself very well. You're insecure about every single thing from, like, your ankles to your personality. <laughs> Like, ankles. I I did. I thought my ankles were too bony. Like it's just like oh, every my ankles are too thing. fat. So yeah, anything. It could yeah, be every anything. part of you as a woman is too much of this or too little of that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's ironic because the this idea that it's you know people who challenge transgender ideology are a threat to trans people because in reality, I think it's that transgender ideology is a threat to gender non-conforming people and just and the idea of not being gender non-conforming in general i don't even like that word because it's just people and personalities and it's like just be yourself and be whoever you, yeah. you don't need to i like fit gender in with atypical. any of these yeah i like okay. gender atypical because it's more neutral whereas like when you say non-conformity it's automatically like well conformity is bad and non-conformity is good it's like let's not ascribe a value judgment yeah yeah that makes sense um, and yeah, not only to the young girls who would likely grow up to be lesbians, um, or the young boys who would likely grow up to be gay. Um, but again, yeah, women, women who, who don't fit in and, and should feel like it's okay to not fit in. And actually it's great not to fit in. Like, I really like myself and I'm glad that I don't feel like I have to fit into those stereotypes 
or be phony and fawning or, you know, that I don't yeah. care. People don't like me. I really don't care. There's, I'm sure there's lots of women who think I'm a bitch. I know there's lots of women who think I'm a bitch and I oh, just yeah. don't care. And that's so much more empowering than being like, okay, I'm not normal. I'm atypical. I don't fit in with these people, with these roles. So therefore I need to cut off my breasts. And, like, take testosterone and be a, a man. I mean, one of the things that was discussed in Affirmation Generation, which has been thrown around by trans activists for a very long time in terms of in terms of pressuring people to accept the idea of trans kids, but also in terms of pressuring therapists and parents and medical professionals into medically transing kids and youth. So prescribing uh, hormones or puberty blockers first and then hormones. Um, and then, you know, these, these, these surgeries um, is that if kids don't get these medical treatments and these surgeries, they'll commit suicide. Um, and, and, you know, trans activists will throw all sorts of stats out there and say, you know, these, these kids are really at risk. And if you don't let them trans, or if you don't trans them, they'll kill themselves. Um, I'm curious to know what you know about those statistics and what you know about suicidality in kids who, who say they have gender dysphoria or who are, who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria. I'm so glad that you invited me to debunk this myth. It is the most important myth that I could possibly debunk, and I will go around debunking it until it is thoroughly debunked. <laughs> um, okay. So, okay, okay, okay. So, um, and I just did this on uh, American Thought Leaders with Yanya Kellick. I went into this as well. So I'm, I'm going to repeat myself for anyone who heard that. So, will commit suicide? No, might. Commit, no, uh, consider, contemplate, or attempt. Those are different levels of severity, right? Um, is it true that trans-identified youth have higher than average rates of suicidal ideation? Yes. Can we separate that out from their comorbidities? No. Um, their, their rates, as far as I'm aware, are commensurate with the comorbidities that we are failing to address with the diagnostic overshadowing of the gender dysphoria. Now, suicidal ideation is one thing. Suicidal behavior is another. And completed suicide is another still. Um, so suicidal ideation is common. I, I'm a therapist. I'm used to talking about it, right? Like, I've, I've had hundreds of patients over the years. May, I've maybe had thousands of patients, I don't know. And I've, you know, I've talked to dozens and dozens of people who've had thoughts of suicide, probably, probably hundreds. Um, so I, I'm, you know, the idea at some point in your life that you might be better off dead or the passing fantasy of, you know, crashing on your way home when, when your lover just left you. I mean, these are normal parts of the human experience. Of course, they've, vary in severity but i just want to say for a moment that suicidal ideation in itself is not a boogeyman it is it is a thing that happens to people during times of stress and for some people it happens 
more than others because of their vulnerabilities, right? Um, now, ideation is one thing, behavior is another, right? So when it comes to behavior, we have non-suicidal self-injurious behavior, and then we have, you know, actual planned or impulsive suicide attempts, and each of those has their success rates. Teenagers are more likely to engage in non-suicidal self-injurious behavior, suicide threats, which are attention-seeking, and um, unsuccessful suicide attempts that land them hospitalized and treated. Um, but all of that is, um, you know, highly dependent on their environment. And this is mediated by a few things. It's mediated by what kids are being told that they should say and how they should feel, which is why I think it's criminal that anyone, let alone a therapist, would ever suggest to a child that they should be thinking about suicide or that they should, frankly, threaten it in order to get what they want and back their parents into a corner with regard to affirmation, which we all know is what's really going on in a lot of these cases, okay? Another thing is that um, teenagers are generally, as long as their parents aren't terribly neglectful people, uh, in the vast majority of cases, teenagers are safe at home with their parents because the love of a parent for their child is a huge protective factor. And there are all kinds of things that parents can do, especially with the help of a responsible therapist, not an affirming therapist, a responsible therapist who actually understands these issues to keep their kids safe at home. So, you know, as a therapist, if I had a kid express suicidal ideation, and I'm not working with under 18s anymore right now, but, um, you know, I would assess, there are things I would do to assess the level of severity, right? whether they had any plan, whether they had any access to the means that they were thinking about using, whether they had any intention, what the level of urgency was, what triggered those thoughts, when it was likely to happen, what their reasons for wanting to die were, but also what their reasons for wanting to live were. And for most kids, there's a lot of ambivalence um, and not years and years of entrenched hopelessness. So with a parent, um, there are things that a parent can learn to do with proper help to assess and monitor and, and work around their kid's actual level of threat. There are times that a parent ideally should be able to take a kid to a hospital. Now, what the hospitals are doing to kids is a whole other issue that we can talk about because hospitals are not helping with this stuff. When a kid gets hospitalized and they claim to be trans and they say that my parents failure to affirm me is a reason that I was thinking about suicide. The hospitals, again, diagnostic overshadowing, ignore all the other issues, focus on the gender dysphoria, split up the family, pressure the parents into a corner saying your kid's going to commit suicide if you don't, right? Like that's not what hospitals should be doing. They make it worse. And then the kid learns, I can just go to the hospital to get affirmed. Yeah. So, so basically there are all these confounding factors. But the thing is, a kid is safe at home with their parents because parents aren't going to let a kid do that on their watch parents will quit their jobs if they have to or they will get a medical leave of absence they will take away their kids devices they will check their kids room for weapons and sharps they will lock up the medications and you know they will take off the door of their kids room if they have to i'm not saying that's always the right solution <laughs> but the idea that somebody's kid is just going to go complete suicide is is 
a gross misrepresentation of how suicidal ideation in adolescence works. Um, and the fact that there are adults saying that is a huge part of the problem. The yeah. fact that there are therapists or doctors saying in front of a kid and their parents, you better affirm or your kid is at risk of suicide, is making it much worse. That's planting a seed in a vulnerable mind. And that's telling a kid that they have no other way out. And I think that's grossly irresponsible of us to be sending that message. My real concern is with the long-term suicide risk of people who choose to pursue these medical interventions. Because those medical interventions induce chronic pain and disabilities and take away people's protective factors. Yeah, I really appreciate you explaining all that because I think, I mean, I think it scares a lot of parents, right? Like a lot of parents are told your kid's going to kill themselves unless you go along with this. And that's super manipulative and super dangerous as as you've explained um and and some parents that i've talked to recently who've been super inspiring um who've told me you know like when their kid came to them and said like i'm trans and i i demand transition i demand hormones i demand a mastectomy and they've you know stood strong taken taken away their devices like refused to let them on social media, you know, separated them from their friends who are identifying as trans or who are super caught up in this ideology, you know, not let them on the internet because that's where so much of this comes from. Um, and just kind of stuck by them and said like, nope, you're a girl and that's great. You know, you're always going to be a girl. Sorry, that's, that's just the reality. I wonder if you have advice for parents who are dealing with this kind of thing that's something that's a question that i get from a lot of scared parents like what to do yeah yeah well i um i mean this is a big part of my clinical practice at this point like i, I work with parents um as i'd say maybe like a third of my caseload um it really depends on the situation i don't know if um I mean, because you gave a good overview of what the average parent might be able to do based on their circumstances. Um, and I, I can just highlight a few things about that approach that work, right? So not getting defensive and not getting scared, drawing a line that's clearly coming from a place of love um, and changing their environment and what they have access to, reinforcing biological reality. Um, but it, a lot kind of depends on how old the kid is, how deeply entrenched they are in this, what the strengths and resources are of the family, um, the, the the types of psychiatric comorbidities the kid is dealing with. Because um, what I've noticed is that, you know, we've all seen the, the graphs showing the exponential growth curve of trans-identifying youth. And in my rough estimation, a few years back on that curve, most of the kids who were identifying this way had a lot of comorbidities. We're at a point now where kids from pretty normal families who don't have a lot of comorbidities are identifying into this just because it's what all their friends are doing. And some of those families are in the best position to really kind of put their arms around the kids, um, block all the exits, meaning show them that you can't just go running to the other parent or the grandparents or the sister or whoever. Like everyone who loves you 
is on our side and we're not going to let you do this. Mm. Um, I would say also when there is still a strong bond with the family and when the kid is still pretty dependent on the family and when there aren't a whole lot of other issues in the family, um, you know, the, the message there needs to be we're the adults and when there's something that impacts you, we're going to talk to each other about it, whether you like it or not. We're going to work together. And it's our job to know what's dangerous. We don't blame you for not knowing that you're playing with fire by experimenting with this identity. But we as the adults in the room uh, happen to know that this thing that you might think is is cute and fun and what all your friends is doing is actually extremely dangerous. Um, what it means to be trans is no joke. Uh, if you continue down this path, although you might not be thinking about medicalizing now, what we know, because we've done our research, because we love you, is we know that this is very likely to lead to a lifelong medicalization, and that's not what we want for you. Um, I'm not saying these messages are right for every parent to send to their kid, but you know, you could continue down that path if, if the kid is open to it. That, um, and, and sometimes parents need to express their heartfelt feelings to their kids while remaining emotionally grounded. That it's, it's so painful for me to see you reject who you are, to see you reject the perfectly good body that you have as a girl or as a boy, to see you reject the name that we gave you and the values that we've tried to instill in you as a family. And you, you can say all you want, this is about self-acceptance, but we clearly see this is about self-rejection. This is about you selling yourself out to try to fit in with your friends and falling into some sexist stereotypes. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes that level of kind of pushing back on the ideology um, can be a wake-up call for kids, depending on the strength of the connection with the parents. Because some kids are in this, they're in this kind of happy illusion that um, that this is all fun and games, and that maybe if one parent is close to this, the other parent would be open, or the grandparents would affirm, or whoever, you know? And sometimes you have to burst that bubble for them and show them that you mean business, you understand this is very serious, you're not going to let them play around with it. And it's also important, um, uh, one thing, don't try to get your kids to make sense of this. I mean, a lot of parents are like, tell me how, you know, about your feelings about this. And they, they want their kid to explain their feelings. And the thing is, like, I always hear that the kids aren't able to say anything that makes sense. And it's like, don't forget that this is coming from their friends, you know, just assume that it is. And, and then another important element and the, and these are, I'm just picking and choosing like little elements of the work I do. This is like what I talk about for a living. So obviously there's more to it, but, um, one thing you also want to do is, um, you're trying to get your kid to reattach to you rather than their peers and, um, to look to you for guidance and comfort. And, so well, you don't want them to feel that they're caught between you and their friends or you and someone else who's important to them. Um, they're going to be embarrassed if they have to walk this back in front of their kid, their friends. Um, so you want to show your kids that you want to help them save face. So in, in other words, in a private setting with just the family, you want to kind of burst the bubble, show them, we understand that this is a lot more serious than you realize. We're not going to let you do this. And actually everyone here is on board, right? Then the kid has to go through the feelings of futility, the embarrassment, the tears, the anger, the disappointment, right? And then you need to have, 
your kid have an experience of relief from you that that they're grateful that you actually didn't embarrass them in front of their friends or the other people they thought were going to be on their side that everyone everyone who cares about them all the adults in the room are here on your team if you can get that but but thankfully we didn't have to have this conversation in front of grandma and grandpa they care about you and they just want to see you let go of this and you know they'll they'll be there for you and then the next stage is how can we help you save face with your friends? How can we help you walk this back with your friends? And and there's room to, to blame the parents, be like, oh, my parents won't let me, blah, 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 um, and still maintain the relationship. But ultimately, you want your kid turning to you as a source of comfort and guidance. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think a lot of parents are going to be really grateful to hear this. Um, and thanks for your your work with Affirmation Generation. I hope everyone who hasn't yet seen it goes to affirmationgenerationmovie.com. Sorry about that. Um, and can you let people know where they can find you online? Yeah, so, um, so that's the website for Affirmation Generation. You can also follow Affirmation Generation on Twitter at 2022 affirmation you can follow affirmation generation on instagram at affirmation generation and then for myself um you can find my podcast you must be some kind of therapist wherever you get your podcasts or on youtube um, my website is sometherapist.com my handle on twitter and instagram is at some therapist and uh yeah that'll do it awesome it was really great to talk with you today thank you so much for your time Great. Thank you, Megan. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. This allows you access to special content, early access to episodes, and weekly private live streams. This allows you access to special content, early access to episodes, and private live streams. You can also follow and support my work on Substack, that's meganmurphy.substack.com, or you can support this podcast directly on anchor.fm by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely entirely on individual donors to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. You can donate any amount you like via PayPal at paypal.me slash the same drugs from $5 a month to 20 to 100 or more or less. It all counts. Thank you so much for supporting conversations outside the algorithm. <laughs>